and welcome to episode 63 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi, and this is the second of a two-part series recorded on the road by my esteemed colleague Peter Lim at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's conference, 50 Forward, a half century of African studies at Wisconsin. I'm Peter Lim, my co-host Peter Alagi is away, and I'm podcasting at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where the African Studies Center is celebrating 50 years of working on Africa, in part by presenting the conference 50 Forward, a half century of African studies at Wisconsin. Also here at the conference is our special guest, Professor Thomas Turner, a prominent political scientist of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's published widely on the DRC and the region, including The Congo Wars, Conflict, Myth and Reality, Z Books 2007, and Ethnogenes et Nationalism en Afrique Centrale au Racine de Patrice Lumumba, Balamatan in 2000, and with Crawford Young, The Rise and Decline of the Zairean State, published here at the University of Wisconsin Press in 1985. Also importantly, he's an Amnesty International Country Specialist for the DRC. He has taught, among other places, at the National University of Rwanda and the University of Tunis, Ilmanar. Welcome, Dr. Turner. Thank you, Peter. You have a fascinating paper at the conference entitled Noise and Silence in the History of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Which noises and silences and why? Well, I should add a little bit, maybe a little bit more explicitly than I did during the paper presentation here at the conference, that people who study communication often try to distinguish between noise in the sense of static, for example, and message. So I'm really going to be talking about noise, including both, because some of the communication about Congo and about other things, I presume, includes a certain amount of noise that doesn't convey any information. And there's also some signal of actual information embedded there. And then the silence I'm going to be talking about is breaks in the noise as detected outside the country, at least. Studying the history of Congo, there's a kind of a periodization problem. There's three big periods of noise or international attention, which coincide with the Congo Free State and the international campaign against the human rights abuses that occurred under uh, King Leopold's rule in Central Africa. And then there's a period of relative silence. Belgian missionary Father Gilbert wrote a book called L'Empire du Silence, the, Emperor, the Empire of Silence, talking about the colonial period. Then there's another burst of noise, including both message and static. The Congo crisis of 1960, a very different situation, the Cold War involvement of the United States and marginal involvement of the Soviet Union, China, and so forth, the assassination of the first elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, and so on. The establishment of an American-supported dictatorship under General Mobutu leads to another relative empire of silence. When it's not that there's no information coming out, we academics were studying Congo, not only the book that Crawford Young and I did, but for example, the work of Will Reno and others on Congo Zaire, as it was then called, as a kleptocracy. But I think really, from the point of view of international media and international attention, it was a relative period of silence. 
And then since 1996, the invasion of Eastern Congo by Rwanda, Uganda, and others, there's been another period of noise, international attention. It's curious how this metaphor of silence continues to dominate various groups, both Congolese exiles and, for example, women's activists in the United States talk about breaking the silence. And I sit in my office thinking, what silence is that? I hear a cacophony of hundreds of voices talking about Congo. Now, that may generate into noise in the sense that they're sort of canceling each other out, but silence doesn't seem to be a very useful way of describing it. Now, the first problem then, and this probably my historian colleagues might conceive of this as kind of a naive statement, but I'm a political scientist, that's my excuse here, is how to explain this pattern of lots of noise, then relatively little noise, then lots of noise again, then relatively little, and then a period now when we've got quite a lot of noise, uh, perhaps epitomized by the Coney 2012 campaign that's going on right now, which seems to me to have an awful lot of static and very little real information, but nonetheless certainly is not usefully described as silence. As I started working on this, it occurred to me also that not only the dis distinction between noise and signal or message needed to be investigated a little bit more, but also the distinction between silence and silencing or to be silenced. There's a pattern of neologisms here that's developed recently. It used to be the people disappeared, and then they were disappeared. And it is an equivalent kind of a thing with silence. They have gone away, or we don't hear from them anymore. Well, maybe they were silenced. And I thought maybe we ought to talk a little bit about being silenced. So we also have here the, in a sense, the voiceless also, you know, we have the voices of the voiceless. And well, this is one of the clearest examples of being silenced. And of course, the question is, does it really work beyond the immediate uh, short-term uh, consideration? You're referring probably to the human rights activist, Florbert Chabea, who was silenced. And the ironies are multiple. He was the founder of an organization called Voice of the Voiceless, Voix des Sans Voix. And he was invited to appear at the office or residence, I don't remember the details, of the commander of the National Police, uh, General Numbi, who was a close associate of President Kabila. Never returned back, was found murdered in his car, and his driver disappeared. No trace has been seen. So we found the body of, they found the body of Jabea. The uh, driver, Fidel, just disappeared. What happened to him, we still don't know. And because of the new situation, or perhaps as, a, as an intentional uh, calculation, it was decided that there needed to be a trial. And of course, being Congo, a trial doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a fair trial. The trial of the murderers of Chabea was conducted by a military tribunal, which has rather less guarantees for the defendants than a civilian trial would have had. And even the civilian courts in Congo are not really very reliable and professional. And the military tri tribunal, further considerations arise. To what court, at what level, is the case going to be referred? And General Numbi, the head of the police, is a general. So he can't be sent to a court which is headed by somebody who, whom he out outranks. That is, if you send him to a tribunal where the presiding magistrate is a colonel, he can't try Numbi because Numbi's a general. So by just striking Numbi's name off of the list of defendants, now the case can go to that tribunal. And Numbi, who might have been called as a witness, certainly is not going to be one of the defendants. So it may very well be that 
people who actually carried out the crime were sentenced, but to say the very least, incomplete. And of course, beyond that, since Numbi, one of the key figures in the Kabila regime, was Numbi acting on his own, or was he perhaps acting on the explicit or implicit orders of President Kabila? We'll never know because that was uh, swept under the carpet. So yeah, the silencing and Shabaya is one of the clearest examples. There's a list of journalists and human rights activists who have been eliminated. Kabungulu in eastern Congo, who visited my wife and me at, at our house in Butare, was killed in, uh, in Bukavu shortly after that, and no judicial action was ever taken. There's another, another case where a journalist was killed in Bukavu, and some of his friends were arrested and charged with the murder. And of course, the prosecution doesn't absolutely have to have a theory of the crime, but it's, it, it would have been interesting to know what the theory of the crime was under which his friends killed somebody who would plausibly be a target of reprisal by uh, Congolese military, for example. So silencing is part of the pattern that we're, that we're talking about. And you mentioned the, uh, the human rights activist who came to visit you and your wife and might be interesting for the listeners to know just a little tiny bit about how you yourself got involved in this long-term work on Central Africa and along what pathways it led you. Okay, I was interested in studies of the third world and if things had gone differently it might have turned out to be Southeast Asia or Latin America but Africa was at least one of the possibilities and when I got to Madison I found this African studies activity just getting ramped up that you're uh, as you've been referring to I'm not in the very first years of the of, of it but only a few years after that and I discovered that in the political science department Crawford Young was already at, at a young age major scholar of, of Congo, and in the history department they had just recently brought on board Jan Van Sina, who goes on to spend the next 50 years as one of the leading historians of Central Africa, focused especially on Congo. So I sort of gravitated between Young and Van Sina in, in doing my studies here and preparing uh, my dissertation. I think actually the, the, uh, the work that led to the study of the Tetela, which is the ethnic community of Patrice Lumumba, what comes out of a suggestion from Bansina, who was more aware, perhaps, than, than, than most people, of which parts of Congo needed attention and which were already being, at that point, relatively overstudied. Uh, for example, a lot of people have studied and have gone on to study the Bakongo, who live between Kinshasa and the ocean. Whole parts of the country are relatively understudied. Vansina suggested uh, the Tetela. And it, it's a choice that I, that, that I don't at all regret. It led, led me to become somewhat of an expert on Patrice Lumumba, at least in terms of his, of his background, his training, and his early career, but also uh, to know something about an important part of, uh, a part of the Congo. Things, things work in funny ways, and we've been hearing some examples of this for, from other participants in, in yes. the meeting. Yeah. I had a grant from the University of Wisconsin which would have paid for one year of doing research in Africa. But I also knew a Congolese who, was, who had been appointed to the staff of what was then the Free University of the Congo, the Protestant University, which was the third 
university of the country after Louvanium, which is the Catholic university and still the, uh, in its latest incarnation, the University of Kinshasa, still the flagship uh, uh, university. And then the second one was the official university of the Congo in Lubumbashi, which was founded by uh, Belgian secularists as, as a kind of counterweight to uh, Lovanium, and the Protestants came in third with the Free University of the Congo. I wrote to him and said, hi, how are you doing? Uh, what's happening in Kisangani? And he wrote right back and said, I'm giving you a charge horaire. When can you get here? <laughs> so I did, didn't have to go through much of any screening process at all. Uh, that may sound very informal, but I think there's still a certain amount of this kind of thing. When Congolese get very bureaucratic, as they sometimes do, they're to some extent doing that on purpose because there's all, always ways of short-circuiting that kind of thing and getting straight to the uh, heart of the matter. I got a a uh, university appointment with a full teaching load at a time when uh, without, a doc without a doctorate in hand it might have been difficult for me to get that kind of a job elsewhere. But I spent two years in, in Kisangani. I was able to learn, at least get a start on learning the Tetela language. I went during a long vacation to, uh, to Sankuru. I went, stayed again for six months. I probably got much more, more done in the two years than I would have got done if I'd gone for nine months with the university fellowship. On that more contemporary note, uh, in your talk you, you raised issues to do with the Kony 2012 and also an earlier Enough campaign and um, it struck me that those are very, they're very much burning issues at the moment. There's debates, there's conflict on some campuses here. Could you perhaps just uh, uh, give your perspective on what's going on with this uh, Coney 12 uh, campaign. Well, I think one of the problems, Coney 12, one of my problems with it, and I'm going to try to say this in a way so it doesn't sound like, oh, he's from Amnesty, which is sort of older generation of humanitarian organization, and they are kind of jealous of the upstarts who are coming along and have better ma mastered the new technologies and so forth. There's an element of that, and Amnesty is going to have to figure out how to change. It's Amnesty, by coincidence, is also 50 years old. That's got nothing to, to do with anything in particular, but it, it, Amnesty had just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Right. And it's clearly going to have to figure out what to do about a, a world where people can be informed and or misinformed in a click of a mouse and things can spread all over the place, kind of humanitarian version of flash mob. Humanitarian organizations always oversimplify and moralize complex situations. They don't usually do it quite as much as Coney 12. I was thinking back to the periods in my, my study that I identified before. The Congo Free State, a lot of noise, a lot of attention. A lot of people knew about uh, the abuses of the Congo Free State. That didn't just happen. In other words, there was a process by which Protestant missionaries who were already on the ground before the Congo Free State was founded started writing reports sent, sending back to their headquarters in England and in the United States in particular, Sweden also, about abuses that were occurring. Would that have been enough to outrage and create a real international movement? No, but it was a necessary first step in the process. Then there had to be some kind of aggregation of all of that stuff. And E.D. Morel, a Frenchman who became an Englishman and was, was working for 
a trading company that was, was involved in Congo shipping, then made himself into a human rights activist and started accumulating this information and collating the information about the commercial end of things, the export of ivory or rubber or other products, and what the missionaries were saying. And then uh, you get sort of the equivalent, and I would say it's a distinctly more distinguished uh, or a different, let's just say a different sort of the, the equivalent of the George Clooney's and Jolie and Mia Farrow and all of these celebrities going to Central Africa and becoming instant experts on the subject. Morel's campaign gets Anatole France and Arthur Conan Doyle and Mark Twain and some other people who are obviously well known outside of this to jump in on the bandwagon. Would Mark Twain have written his masterful King Leopold's Ghost without having been provoked by Morel in his campaign? Probably not. So there's a cumulative kind of an effect. But I want to distinguish that from what I see as happening with uh, Coney 2012. Morel didn't just do this all by himself. He uh, had an association called the Congo Reform Association, which had national branches. If you wanted to know more about this, if you saw a, a slideshow with severed hands and so forth, as many people did, if they'd wanted to know more about it, they could, they could get a copy of Memorial's book. He wrote a series of them. Those are still available, by the way. I ordered Great Britain and the Congo uh, by E.D. Morrell, 1909, from, I think, Cornell University Press. And since it's not under copyright anymore, you can download the whole damn thing in a minute. And there it is on your computer screen. Morrell did serious work. And among the, the other campaigners, I would say the Enough Project can be criticized also for sensationalizing and oversimplifying in its initial approach to the public, but they have serious reports. They send people out there who do investigations, and a lot of that, this is available on their websites. You can't really do that with, with Coney 2012 and Invisible Children. They have a series of videos, but the videos do not reassure me at all. They rather the contrary. And one even finds in there a quote talking about how this humanitarian activity could be a Trojan horse to get the organization into the schools. This, it seems to me, is sort of silencing through dissimulation or something like this, which is uh, not, a very, uh, not a very attractive thing. And there's sort of a serious uh, military dimension there, too, because they're calling for military solutions, and that might lead on perhaps to another theme, which is your wonderful book, Con The Congo Wars, Conflict, Myth and Reality. And, and this is, these wars have in some ways been likened to Africa's equivalent of a world war. And I think this book that you've written is really has been very much needed. It distills the complexity. I was talking to Crawford Young earlier and he was sort of just talking about the great complexity of politics in, in the DRC. And in an earlier book uh, edited by John Clark, The African Stakes of the Congo War, you explained that very well, I thought, the partisan and self-interested interventions by a range of countries, by Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe, Namibia, and you mentioned probable external assassination of Laurent Kabila. I wonder if you could briefly explain, I mean, it's very difficult to briefly explain some of this, but all this external inter intervention in the Congo, could you Talk to that for our listeners. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a good uh, starting point rather than just going on and on with what I, uh, what I said yesterday in presenting my paper. There's, there's another one of the sort of p 
periodization or, or date problems that arises. A lot of people say the war began in 1996, so let's start talking about what happened in 1996 when the Ugandan and Rwandan armies and a smaller uh, intervention by Burundi crossed the borders of eastern Congo. Well, you can't really do that because what was happening there was a fairly direct consequence of the genocide which had occurred in Rwanda in 1994. But you need to know also that that genocide was a sequel to the invasion of Rwanda from Uganda by Rwandan exiles. That happened in 1990. Some of the Rwandan eg exiles who invaded Rwanda and set off the civil war which led to this humanitarian disaster, the Rwanda genocide, were actually Kinyarwanda speakers, Rwanda language speakers from Congo. So the Congolese didn't invade uh, Rwanda, but some Congolese participated uh, in that war on the, in the Rwandan Patriotic Army of pre now President uh, Kagame from 90 to 94. I think General Nkunda, for example, who's been one of the figures in this unrest in, in, in the Eastern Congo for the past more than a decade, actually is one of the people who joined the war before the RPF, RPF, RPA victory in 1994 that led to the establishment of, of the present regime in Rwanda. So it didn't start just like that, but it's a series of events which lead to, which lead to this situation. It doesn't mean that the Rwandan genocide is the only thing that's led to what's happened in Congo. There's also genocidal violence in Burundi, which, which feeds into this. David Newberry, who was at this meeting, called it in a, a paper, which I don't remember fi finally what form it was published, called Convergent Catastrophes, meaning that each of them has to be understood in its own right, but of course they are linked, and they are linked in ways which complicate the message of some of the participants. Some Congolese like to talk about, oh, the Rwandans invaded us, as though there wasn't, wasn't already a shooting war going on in Congo with forces that were somewhat defined ethnically, and some of those being people of, of Rwandan origin who were fighting against other people uh, in eastern Congo already before that invasion. The involvement of the United States is certainly something that, uh, that needs to be, to be sorted out. Um, I don't do as much with it in my uh, book, Congo Wars, as some other authors have done. Both Philippe Renchens, a uh, Belgian scholar, and Gérard Prunier, a French scholar, have de dealt in more detail with what they s see as um, the uh, nature of the American involvement. There is no question that the United States, at some point, became an active sponsor of Kagame's government, and that was certainly the case at the time that Rwanda invaded Congo in 1996. So this sort of, oh, isn't it dreadful reaction from Washington is not believable. The State Department may very well believe this to, to some extent. The Defense Department in particular has been an active sponsor of Kagame. It's curiously, Kagame Jr., the son of the president, winds up as a cadet at West Point and so on. There's a sponsorship involved here. I'm not saying that uh, that's the only thing that's involved, but it's certainly one of them. And uh, an important additional aspect of the wars is uh, the economic sphere. And a few years ago, you gave us a, a great talk at Michigan State on coltan and the conflict. And of course, there's other uh, minerals and resources in, involved. And 
Michael Nest has now published a book looking at how international competition for the mineral is contributing to the ongoing collapse of the DRC and the continuation of a war that has cost millions of lives. So what is the, and, and journalists like Colette Brakeman in, in Belgium and, and George Nongola yesterday have addressed all these issues of pillaging, pillaging of Congo. So what is the significance of these uh, resource uh, contests uh, in the Congo wars? And this has been a, the coltan, the cobalt has been a big issue lately. Well, uh, let, me, let me talk about coltan and cobalt separately. Cobalt com is coming out of Katanga province, and it, which hasn't been greatly involved in the Congo Wars. One of the effects of, I could almost fit it back into my silencing paradigm be from before, if you talk a lot about Coltan, you talk a lot about the East, you talk a lot about the run and invasion and so forth, that's sort of like prestidigitator saying, watch this, watch this, and you don't see what the other hand is doing. One of the things that's happened is the transfer of ownership of a number of the mines in Katanga, some of them in areas which have been controlled continuously by the Kinshasa government and aren't even really part of this Rwanda versus Congo struggle and so forth, some of these important mines have changed hands. So that copper deposits that have been known since the uh, 1910s or 1920 or so, but which couldn't be exploited with the technology that was available then, have now become very valuable and an American mining company has in the process of all of this other stuff that's been going on, acquired ownership. And cobalt is, unlike copper, is found only in a certain number of places. It's a component of aircraft engines and other things and is classified as a strategic mineral. The United States is not especially interested in taking over lots and lots of diamond mines or, or uh, tin mines or whatever it is. They are very interested in, in having access to to, uh, to, to cobalt, and that's one of the concerns here. I think, I think it needs, another distinction that really needs to be made is who is it that's interested in having ongoing unrest and disorder? There are people that are interested in that. Warlords and relatively nickel and dime kind of exporters of gold or diamonds or whatever might very well like to have a situation where there's a lot of disorder and no, no very effective government and so forth. I think the petroleum companies are the, one of the leading examples of the opposite thing. You don't want to have armies fighting over your petroleum installations. And that we, we saw that in the, the other end of, of Congo in the Cabinda enclave of, of Angola during the Angolan Civil War, Cuban troops were guarding Gulf oil installations in Cabinda so that they wouldn't be, become a, a direct target of uh, fighting between UNITA and the Cabindan separatists and so forth and would be continue to, to pump oil. You can't have your oil fields being fought over. If that happens, you run the risk of it happening recently in Sudan, where one side decides to bomb the, the oil installations. I don't think most oil companies are interested in having their, their oil wells or oil storage facilities bombed by air raids, because that sets, back, sets things back for years. And all of these are connected, of course, to return to the political sphere or the intersection between politics and aid. A, a recent book by Theodore Trefon speaks to the image of a Congo masquerade on the failure not just of the state but also of management and aid of what he calls an imported template of reforms and a catastrophic aid 
inefficiency and some 27 years ago you wrote with Crawford Young this uh, very interesting book The Rise and Decline of the Zairean State which reminds us of continuing failures of, of states and of aid and this sort of leads on to my, my final question about the future, what of the future and uh, there was this rather unsatisfactory election in recent years and uh, conflict continues and as an amnesty country specialist you must hear of many human rights problems you've already raised some earlier so I mean in this big picture what sort of changes are needed of the of the international community of of African states of Congolese leaders for uh, peace and economic security in this in this vast region well, I think that's a very, a very good question. If, if there were an easy answer, I'd be glad to give it to you. Uh, and and it, it's not easy, partly because these phenomena are, are already are very, very, very much linked. I think I said this yesterday in the uh, panel that you're talking about. There's a kind of interaction and sta uh, as regards standard setting that goes on in the Great Lakes region. Let's just for simplicity's sake talk only about DR Congo, Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, although it applies also to some of the other neighboring states. When the president of Rwanda organizes elections from which some serious contenders are excluded or allowed to run only under severe handicaps, and he gets 90% of the vote or something like this, the kind of result that we saw in, uh, in, in the Rwandan elections, and the United States and Britain, who are subsidizing the Rwandan government, say, okay, that was pretty good. Instead of saying that was terrible, then you've, you've in a sense, set the bar. And Kabila organizes elections not because he wants to, but because he's feeling a lot of pressure internationally. But he has Rwandan elections as a kind of a standard. Uh, it's okay to handicap the uh, opposing candidates so that they don't uh, represent any serious threat, can't allow them to say something that everybody knows, which is that uh, I, candidate X, am a Hutu, and President Kagame is a Tutsi. Everybody knows that anyway, so it, maybe it doesn't change a whole lot, but you can't campaign on any basis like that, and you've set, uh, you, you've set a standard. Kabila can't do the same thing without producing quite a bit more violence but you hold elections which were originally scheduled for 2005 and then had to be postponed to 2006, and there's violence leading up to the elections. There's further violence between the two rounds because at that point they were using a French-style system based on the idea of an actual majority, which means 50% plus one, and nobody got 50% plus one in the first round, so of course there had to be second ones. There was fighting between the two rounds of the elections, uh, there was further fighting after the second round of the elections, and eventually the unsuccessful candidate, uh, Mr. Bemba, had to flee the country with some help from the South African embassy. And Bemba was later sent to the uh, International Court in The Hague, where he's on trial for human rights violations, not committed in DR Congo, by the way, but committed in the Central African Republic, which many people in Congo find it puzzling, to say the least. But then those elections were ruled to be largely free and fair, the Kabila election in 2006. Well, now Kabila has his own standard. He doesn't have to refer to Rwanda or Uganda. He can say, my election was, uh, 
what, what was approved by the international community. I am legitimate on that basis. And that's what George Zongola criticized the, the German uh, ambassador yesterday to Nigeria for, criticized the EU for, for endorsing those uh, imperfect elections in that way. Well, that's right. And the, the Europeans, and I would say the Americans as well. I mean, I don't want to try to make a distinction between the two because I think they're, they're really both in the same situation. They want there to be elections. They would prefer that they be less messy than these elections were. They send election observers. By sending election observers, you're inevitably playing a kind of a double game. That is to say, you are expressing suspicion about the elections, but you're also somehow endorsing the process too. And, and you can't separate them. You, can't, you could say, but they don't say it, these elections are so obviously a joke that we're not going to send any observers. I mean, why, why should anybody waste their time uh, watching the elections in Congo or Zimbabwe or someplace like this? Because we know they're going to be messy and they're not going to reflect the results of the people. But they do send observers and they do implicitly therefore accept the idea that somehow, if only there were a little bit less violence and a little bit more of this or whatever, then somehow this could express the will of the people. I, I think it's a, it's a genuine dilemma and I don't see any, any real way out of it. Well, the, I guess the struggle for peace and uh, democracy continues. And uh, Tom Turner, thanks very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Thank you, Peter. Africa, past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Our producer is Annette Giannino. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Yeah.